podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today to discuss the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court is Kenny Stein, the Director of Policy at the Institute for Energy Research. Kenny is a graduate of the University of Houston Law Center and an expert on the administrative and regulatory state. Kenny, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start just with some basic background uh, on Brett Kavanaugh. What's his current position and why did Trump select him for uh, the Supreme Court nomination? Yeah, Judge Kavanaugh is on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He's been there since 2006, so about 12 years. And the D.C. Circuit is the... uh, often considered the second most powerful court in the United States after the Supreme Court. And the main reason for that is because the D.C. Circuit is the main venue for appeals against administrative decisions by all sorts of various agencies, the EPA, Department of Commerce, you know, and on and on and on. So because of that, the D.C. Circuit has an outsized effect on regulatory law and the administrative law generally. So Judge Kavanaugh, obviously, with 12 years experience on the D.C. Circuit, that's that's a very strong record. And it's very common, actually, for Supreme Court justices to come from the D.C. Circuit because, again, because it is the main venue for appealing against the regulatory state, the administrative state, the D.C. Circuit ends up hearing a very wide range of cases. So they get a, they get a, a touch in a lot of different places. They have opportunity to consider constitutional challenges uh, much more often than your average circuit judge. So the breadth of experience um, and the and the gravity of the decisions being made too, because a lot of very consequential decisions are made by the D.C. Circuit. So he was appointed to the D.C. Circuit after. Uh, directly from the Bush White House. He worked for George W. Bush. Before that, he worked for Ken Starr. Um, Going back uh, when he was younger, he actually clerked for Anthony Kennedy, who's the justice that he's being nominated to replace. So he's an extremely qualified uh, justice. Uh, Certainly the record he's had, that's it's greater than your average, even for a Supreme Court justice nominee. Why don't we just get into your uh, your overall assessment of Brett Kavanaugh? What was his appointment mean for administrative law and regulatory law if you were to be confirmed and on, on the Supreme Court? Well, and that's what's that's what's so interesting about Kavanaugh is because he has had 12 years on the D.C. Circuit, he's had an opportunity to consider a huge number of cases on regulatory administrative law. And he's got a long record. He's written a lot of decisions. He's written some dissents. So we actually have a pretty good idea of his judicial philosophy approaching the regulatory state. Now, some of the other, some of the more hot button social issues and things like that, he hasn't necessarily had an opportunity to weigh in on because those can come from different directions. But as far as the way he approaches the administrative state, he's very careful that the there is actual legal justification, the like legislative language passed by Congress that says an administrative agency is allowed to do whatever they are doing. He looks takes a very dim view of interpreting their authority expansively, of making up maybe new authorities, or going back and looking at authorities that were have been well understood for decades and reinterpreting them and deciding, actually, you know what, we get to do a lot more under this than we said before. So he, he takes a very dim view of that. And for energy issues specifically, which is obviously what we focus on, uh, he's had a 
very long record of trying to peg back uh, mainly the EPA because this is particularly under the previous administration, the Obama administration, that's where a lot of these sort of regulatory overreach efforts uh, originated. And he's, he's bringing them back in. Occasionally he'll overturn decisions, but this is again part of what I think is his judicial philosophy. He's not truly activist in the sense he's constantly trying to overturn things. He is willing to allow the agency to go as far as he thinks the language allows them to. So if they go too far, there's a, he has a number of cases where he he overturns one part of what they did, but allows the rest to go on. So he's very he's very textual. He very he looks at the actual legislative language, not just is what they're doing generally sound like what Congress authorized to them. He specifically goes and says, is there specific language? What he has tried to popularize, and this goes into we can talk about this as well about Chevron deference, but. He has been very careful within the concept of Chevron deference, which is uh, you generally defer to regulatory agencies' interpretation of legislative language that is ambiguous. But even within that doctrine, which is a Supreme Court doctrine, he has been very careful to say on major questions where an agency, whether EPA, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, whatever agency, when they are asserting huge new powers, he wants to, it to be very clear. He's made sure that this is kind of major questions that if they're asserting this new huge power, it needs to be very explicitly granted by Congress. He doesn't, he, he has made the argument multiple times that if Congress intends to grant massive power, they're going to explicitly say so. They're not going to imply a massive regulatory expansion. And that I think is one of the most important characteristics he's going to bring to the court because that's not a liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat attitude. It's very much a textualist approach. And and I think that's and that's something that I think that both sides of the aisle should see value in. Yeah, these questions of, of the jurisprudence are really interesting. Um Abstractly, not even thinking about energy issues, but just how we think about our government and the relationship between the branches. Uh, I think of myself as, as jurist curious, I'm not sure which um, exact perspective I have right now. Uh, but can you talk about um, Chevron deference more, the history of that, and how a judge at a lower court responds to that sort of um, Supreme Court position? Right. Well, Chevron deference gets its name from Chevron versus the NRDC, which was a case in the 80s. When Congress when Congress passes a law, a lot of times they'll say, EPA, go do X, create regulations to give effect to whatever that is. And the problem is, is that because members of Congress are not experts in most of the issues they're passing laws on, they leave a lot of vague language or sort of regulations to be determined at a future date, and they leave that to the experts in these various departments and agencies. And Chevron deference was developed by the Supreme Court. This isn't something that's passed by Congress. This is the Supreme Court's way to deal with when you have legislation that's passed where perhaps something says or, like how much weight you give to each side of that or. If and they say, the Supreme Court said, essentially, uh, if an agency looks at that and says, this is what we think this means, all the Supreme Court will do is look at that and say, is that a reasonable interpretation of 
what was passed by Congress. And if it is, they're going to defer to the agency's determination interpretation. Because um, the idea is that courts are not expert on these issues. You know, the experts are in these agencies and departments. And there's something to that, though, isn't there? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's part of this is part of the problem with the, the growth and the size and power of our federal government is that it's regulating so many different things in impeding and sneaking into so many parts of life that you have to develop an expertise once you start trying to regulate some of these low level things. So it does it does make sense to a certain extent. The problem is, of course, is that it is almost too deferential. It basically sets up a situation where most lower courts default to the agency position. They tend not to question the decision. That's problematic because that means that it's always a one-way ratchet. Uh, if an agency thinks that they have a power, courts most of the time are going to say, yeah, that's fine. I guess you do have that power. There is, of course, the decisions made by judges but this comes and justices this comes back to clarity of language from the legislative branch really right oh yeah well and congress congress created this problem and somewhat intentionally because this is part of how uh, congress dodges the difficult decisions they say we want the government to do something about this but we're not really sure what they should do so we're going to leave that up to the EPA and then when the EPA comes out with the regulation Members of Congress who don't like it, they go out and they go back and tell their constituents, oh, the EPA is out of control. They're regulating. They're trying to destroy your lives, even though Congress may have given them that power. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an intentional shirking of their duties by Congress, too. Partly by, one, I think maybe unconstitutionally handing over their, their powers to executive agencies. Um, but that, of course, that was decided in the New Deal era, so that's sort of... That's rehashing an old fight. They've handed over their powers. And then in addition to handing over the powers, they've left those powers vague so that they can additional authority can be asserted by agencies almost at any time. Then down the road, it seems like there's long run political implications for how seriously we treat presidential elections. Then obviously, we even though we're supposed to have separate branches, we're going to put a lot more weight into obviously electing the executive because Congress has given away all this authority and everything. Right. Basically. Yeah. yeah. It's strengthened. It's overly strengthened the executive branch. And frankly, it's also, that's also been a part of politicizing uh, judges too and Supreme Court justices, because if you're handing over so much ambiguous power to the executive, anytime somebody tries to challenge the executive, that's then determined by judges. And that's actually been a big, a long time push by uh, the Federalist Society and other conservative organizations is to try and create a Supreme Court that's willing to peg back things like Chevron deference, that's willing to tell the executive no sometimes. Because the Supreme Court has become such an important forum for that, every single nominee is fought over tooth and nail. And that's part of the presidential elections being so important because the president obviously nominates those uh, justices. You mentioned briefly there, Kenny, the Federalist Society. Here in D.C., in our circles, it's it's highly respected, of course, but uh, it's now being thrust into the national spotlight because of its contributions to this this list that the president has supposedly been drawing his uh, nominees from. You want to talk about the Federalist Society at all? Yeah, we can talk about it a little bit. I mean, I was a member of the Federalist Society. Um, I was an officer in law school. Basically, the Federalist Society evolved by from the activism of the Supreme Court in the 60s and 70s where 
a lot of new rights and privileges were being uh, granted to the federal government and sometimes to individuals too, but it's also the federal government that were being done without Congress. So it was basically the court was running ahead of Congress and Roe v. Wade obviously is a big one, but um, there's been lots of other decisions, but going back to the New Deal decisions allowing for federal government expansion by judicial fiat. So the Federal Society evolved sort of in the late 70s into the early 80s as a way to push what is now kind of known as constitutional originalism, as opposed to the living constitution idea that was predominant, uh, still predominant on the left, and it was predominant among justices in the 60s and 70s. It's basically saying, well, the constitution says, means something, and judges shouldn't hesitate to enforce those bounds that were set by the constitution. And so over time, the Federalist Society was about teaching law students and then later lawyers and judges about originalism, trying to encourage its spread. Uh, to They started offering recommendations on judicial nominees, on whether they were more originalists or not. And, basically, and they started scoring some of these judges and helping with nominations, uh, usually for Republican uh, presidents. But part of why uh, folks on the left are trying to demonize the Federalist Society in the last few years is that they've finally woken up to how effective the Federal Society has been about introducing new ideas about how judges should behave and how judges should interact with the executive branch. Rather than being a rubber stamp, why not actually say, question whether the Constitution actually allows this to be happening? All right, let's turn our attention to what we consider here at IER to be one of the most critical Supreme Court decisions. Um, and that is Massachusetts versus EPA. Fill in our listeners on what that case was about and how it turned out. So Massachusetts v. EPA was a case from 2007. Essentially, there were some states led by California that wanted to regulate greenhouse gases. And this specific case was about tailpipe emissions from cars. And this had been litigated over years leading up to this, and it finally reached the Supreme Court. And uh, the Bush administration, EPA, had been resisting having the EPA regulate greenhouse gases because they said it was not at all clear Clean Air Act allowed the federal government to regulate greenhouse gases because the Clean Air Act says pollutants and carbon dioxide is a byproduct of human life. You exhale it every time you breathe. Hard to say that that qualifies as a pollutant. But in Massachusetts v. EPA, a closely divided court ultimately decided that for the tailpipe emissions portion of the Clean Air Act, pollutant is any molecule that comes out of the tailpipe. So EPA can regulate CO2 under that section of the Clean Air Act. They didn't say that the EPA must, but they did say that the EPA had to make a decision about whether to regulate. That forced the EPA into the process what is known as an endangerment finding, which is under the Clean Air Act, that's where you assess the danger to human health and welfare of a given molecule that people want to classify as a pollutant. The administration changed over, uh, obviously in 2008, to the Obama administration, who wanted to regulate greenhouse gases. So in 2009, they came out with their endangerment finding, which not surprisingly said that greenhouse gases were a danger to health and welfare. And once that, once that endangerment finding is made, then the EPA must regulate. So that was so it's sort of a two-step process coming out of Massachusetts v. EPA. And a lot of people shorthand say, oh, well, Massachusetts v. EPA says that the EPA has to regulate greenhouse gases. And that's not really true. 
The point being about Massachusetts v. EPA, though, is that the fifth vote in favor of allowing the EPA to regulate carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases was Anthony Kennedy. So his departure from the scene leaves Brett Kavanaugh, the new, or whoever, if he's not confirmed, whoever the new nominee is, becomes the swing vote there. Because the, the new justices that have come in, the new justice that has come in since then has, is uh, Gorsuch. He's expressed opposition, I, I think public opposition to Massachusetts v. EPA, but he's certainly expected to be opposed. And the other three uh, conservative justices all voted against EPA's authority, EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases in 2007. So we know we know there's four votes against, and Kavanaugh then comes out as the swing vote. Now, this is one area where I and I think a lot of other conservatives in the energy world are optimistic about Kavanaugh uh, being willing to challenge that decision by the Supreme Court uh, and overturn it, which, of course, the Supreme Court can, can always do that. But it's not a sure-run thing that he is going to overturn this. One, because partly this is stare decisis, which is the idea that once the Supreme Court has decided something, they should be reluctant to overturn it. Particularly, and of course, the longer the precedent is established, the more people come to rely on it. The government makes a lot of rules and regulations. There's a lot, the whole architecture of in, in the economy, in government, that is built around those decisions. So stare decisis is a reluctance to overturn previous decisions. That's one place that Kavanaugh, in most of his decisions, in my opinion, has been reluctant to be to what some people would call activists. It's not clear that he'd be so bold and willing to completely overturn that. He might try and find a middle path, might find a way to lessen the impact of EPA's decision or maybe just limit limit mass v EPA to just tailpipe emissions and restrict it uh, when they try and regulate other things. So it's not completely clear where he's going to come down on that. But that's a big reason why, one, I'm optimistic, and it's a big reason why people on the left are so afraid of him. Can you talk about the nexus of uh, mass v EPA and the Chevron's Chevron deference doctrine, if there is any, and how the uh, how the justices that dissented, namely Antonin Scalia, who wrote a pretty powerful dissent there, how they assessed that case. Ultimately, Massachusetts v. EPA did not turn on Chevron deference. Really. Okay, it turned on the definition of pollutant. Okay, and the liberal majority said a pollutant is any molecule in the air. Essentially, can count as a pollutant. Now. Uh, for Scalia and the other conservatives, that's a preposterous argument because then oxygen's a pollutant too. CO2, which again, is we exhale with every breath we take, is a pollutant. The reason the Clean Air Act was passed was to protect health. So pollutants should imply some harm, like something that you breathe in harms you, or that lands on, say, lands on a plant and harms the plant. That's what we consider a pollutant, like sludge at, going at into the, the river. At the real world volume that <laughs> right, is produced, right, right, not, right, yeah. not the fact that if you pump somebody full of CO2, they would die. That's right, irrelevant. Yeah, right, exactly. If, real you, world if, you lock somebody, if you lock somebody in a room and fill it with CO2, yes, the person's going to die. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's going to happen. But in the ambient air, right, that's right. not what we encounter. So that's what... That's what Massachusetts v. EPA turned on. It wasn't mm -hmm. Chevron. However, the interaction of those two precedents has meant the EPA has been on a rampage the last 10, little over 10 years 
because once you give EPA the theoretical power to regulate greenhouse gases, Chevron means that you defer to them when they want to regulate something. It's what gave the EPA so much power in the Obama administration, and it's one of the main things that I think limits actually the Trump administration from being able to roll back a lot of the regulations of the Obama administration. I've got uh, two more questions there. First, looking historically here, let's say that that suit never came and the Bush eight years transpired without EPA ever addressing the, the greenhouse gas issue. Obama enters in 2009. If his EPA had simply decided to regulate greenhouse gases, would there have been a suit from the other side or would that have proceeded? Sure. Oh, yeah, that lawsuit, the, the, that would have happened. They, it was going the, to happen right, one way or the, the other. The Obama administration would have started doing an endangerment finding, and mm-hmm. uh, some someone on the right or an industry would have sued to say, no, you don't have the power under the Clean Air Act to do that. And it would have gone to the Supreme Court anyway. Like this was, there, there have been, folks on the environmental left have been trying to get the federal government to regulate carbon dioxide since, since the 90s, since the early 90s. So th- they were just trying to find a way to get it to court. And then second question, what is the perhaps most logical path to unwinding this uh, complicated spool? Well, one, Chevron, Chevron deference is actually the easier one to, to roll back because it's already been heavily criticized uh, by a lot of justices. Even some of the justices on the left have criticized the effect of Chevron. There's been a number of cases since the 80s that have sought to clarify Chevron or pare it back a little bit or give more specific instructions on it to try, basically to try and salvage it because it, it clearly in practice, it leads to some outcomes that everyone kind of agrees are that's, that doesn't make any sense. So the, and the other thing is because Chevron, Chevron has to be considered in almost every case that deals with the regulatory state. Every term, there are multiple cases that the Supreme Court takes and decides on where they they do a Chevron analysis. And any one of those, if the court so chose, they could take it up and either entirely toss out Chevron or significantly pare it back or write a new rule for how, what the standards are for deference to agencies. So that, I mean, that could happen, you know, again, it's, it's up to how far Kavanaugh wants to go. And that's on, unlike Massachusetts v. EPA, I think on Chevron deference, Kavanaugh has been pretty clear that he doesn't like it. So I think on that front, I would expect that a significant pareback of Chevron to happen very soon, almost as soon as he's seated. Is this going to come up in confirmation hearings? Oh, almost certainly. I mean, he'll he'll certainly be asked about it because he said pub- he has publicly criticized um, Chevron deference. So, are there any senators for whom this would be a critical factor? I don't think there's any senators where this changes their vote. Right. Um, I think I. Most Republicans don't like Chevron deference. Democrats, on the whole, do like it. So no, I don't think it. I don't think it changes votes. But it it it's a way for it's a way for people to try and controversialize his nomination. Which, if you generate sufficient controversy, that might potentially scare off some senators. Well, for some reason, I suspect there are going to be other topics that are able to spark more controversy. Right. Yes. <laughs> no, I I agree. But this this will be on the list. Yeah. Are there any uh, like previous decisions from his circuit court days that actually concern you at all? You know, I don't. I haven't seen any yet that are truly concerning. Like I said, uh, there are there's some there's some cases and some decisions that indicate that 
that he's an incrementalist. He's that he doesn't really want to completely start canceling things and breaking things the way like a, a Clarence Thomas. A lot of times, Clarence Thomas, even when he agrees in a in a in a decision, he'll write a concurring opinion, basically saying, "I agree with the outcome here, but you know what? This shouldn't exist at all." So I I don't see Kavanaugh being that type of person, which you know to a certain extent for in the sense of, you know, stability and certainty, maybe a lot of people would like that. Um, for, for me, and I think for IER, who thinks that there needs to be an aggressive pushback against executive overreach, I'm not sure, that, I'm not positive that Kavanaugh is going to be that kind of justice. Now, having said that, he's also been a circuit court justice. This is where he is constrained by Supreme Court precedent. And because he's very careful and textual about this stuff, He's the type of justice who, in the D.C. Circuit, will make a, de- make a decision based on the precedents given to him by the Supreme Court. He's not going to be like, like a Ninth Circuit type judge where constantly being overruled by the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh, in 12 years on the D.C. Circuit, has only had one of his opinions actually overruled by the Supreme Court. What so, was that opinion? So the, one, the only time that uh, Kavanaugh has actually been reversed by the Supreme Court was in the cross-state air pollution litigation, which is actually still ongoing. It's been going up and down from the Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit, uh, back and forth. Originally, uh, his decision vacated the rule and sent it back to EPA. Uh, and the Supreme Court overturned that, said that vacating was too strong, but it did need to be corrected. They didn't completely disagree with Kavanaugh, but reversed part mm-hmm. of his decision and sent it back to the D.C. Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit issued a new opinion. And that current opinion is uh, actually on cert to the Supreme Court right now. Uh, so we'll see we'll see where that goes from here. So if he does get through this confirmation process, he then would be assessing once again, but from a different perspective? Well, that's the, actually the question. Uh, sometimes justices who have heard a case at a lower court right, will right. recuse mm-hmm. from the decision at the Supreme Court level. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a problem because that case could then come out 4-4. But of course, a 4-4 decision means that the lower court decision stands, which is Kavanaugh's decision. So call that a W. <laughs> That's a win right, right there. Right. Were there any other candidates uh, for this nomination that were on that Federalist Society list that you thought might have been better? Well, I actually thought that Amy Barrett would have been uh, a stronger choice, uh, certainly more controversial. Um, the one thing about her, though, is on our issues, on energy issues, uh, she doesn't have much of a record. So it's not not completely clear that she would have been great on all those issues, but I think the likelihood of her being stronger, uh, more stronger on these issues than Kavanaugh uh, is was probable. Someone a Key. bit a bit more in the Clarence Thomas mold that you were right. She to would have been she would have been bolder about mm-hmm. turning back executive agencies and re- taking power back from the executive branch for the legislative branch. So I I probably would have preferred her, you know, in total. Um, but Kavanaugh's not a bad decision. Also, with Kavanaugh, we actually have a long decision, and we know what he thinks about the executive branch action on a lot of these environmental rules. Would have been more difficult to so do a podcast if it, if it weren't him. Yeah, there's there's a, and there's a lot less uncertainty with him. I think we've got a pretty good idea where he's going to be on most of these decisions. The real loss there is the delicious drama we could have experienced if Barrett had been the nominee. It would have right. been, well, that's, would have well, been incredible. And maybe they're saving Barrett for uh, to replace one of the liberal justices. Uh-huh. Then you've really got drama. For a little RBG Barrett swap. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, I mean, Kennedy was, 
he on a lot of things he was the swing vote but there were on there i'd probably say a good third of his decisions he was pretty firmly on the right side of the spectrum so in that sense kavanaugh is an improvement on kennedy because kavanaugh is going to be pretty consistent on everything whereas kennedy was consistent on some things and then he was consistently inconsistent on another group of issues so is it too soon to start looking at who would replace him at the circuit court level and how important that's that oh, that's going to be for that's going to be hugely this is why the originally the filibuster was broken for nominations the filibuster was busted in order to put a bunch of justices on the dc circuit a bunch of leftist justices by the Obama administration right at the end of, right before, in fact, right before the Republicans took over control of the Senate. So right now, they're the people who are known to be left sympathetic are pretty solid majority of the D.C. circuit. It's typically a three-judge panel, unless they do an en banc. Right, right. The way the, the, way the uh, circuit courts work is that you get a three-judge panel initially, you can, if you don't like the decision of that three-judge panel, you can petition for a rehearing en banc, which is the entire circuit court. And this is not just D.C. circuit. This is every circuit. The one thing is en banc, it's usually not granted because there's a reason they do three-person panels. It's because they don't, they don't have enough justices to hear everything, all the justices to hear every case. So the only time they'll do en banc is if, if say, a majority of the other justices disagree with the panel decision. Or if it's a very consequential issue and they feel like this needs to be decided by the entire circuit, not just a panel, that that en banc is uh, accepted or denied, then you have to petition to the Supreme Court. And you don't have to petition for en banc if you don't want to. You can immediately appeal to the Supreme Court. But a lot of times they'll go through that procedural formality. Uh, this is outside the purview of, of anything related to energy, uh, but I'm just interested and I don't know the answer to it. The The process of the Supreme Court granting cert, who is involved in that decision? How do they assess things uh, and decide which cases they're going to take? Well, the that's what they do in conference. That's okay. when we, you'll often hear that um, cases have been distributed for conference. And that's, they'll make a decision and at least four justices have to vote to hear a case. Okay. If you don't get to four, it's the petition for cert is denied and the lower court ruling stands. Once something's granted cert, then it's put on the docket for the next, whatever the next um, sitting of the Supreme Court is. And how many different cases are they looking at as potential uh, grantees? Is it, like a, is it like a five-minute reading and then uh, move on? Or is, are they really looking deeply at these for days or hours at a time? You know, uh, I think it probably each justice is probably a little different. Um, and actually, this is a part of where their clerks come in because their clerks are always the ones to ask. do most of that. And it's a bunch walk. of 25-year-olds yeah. making that decision. Yeah. Now, I mean, some judges read a lot of the cases themselves, but some of them just for conference purposes will read a summary given to them by their clerks. Or the other thing is that these, these justices aren't monks. They're not Amish. Like, they hear about cases coming up. So... They'll usually have some idea about what a controversial case is. So they are legally allowed to read (laughs) the news. Yeah, Yeah, right. They are probably pretty interested in the law. They are are permitted to read the news. Um, So they'll often have some idea about what a case is about, uh, particularly the most controversial ones. The other thing that they'll often determine whether a case is taken up is if there is a lower lower circuit split. 
So if you have the Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit have all decided a particular issue the same way, the Supreme Court's not going to feel the need to intervene and make a decision, unless, unless of course, a bunch of justices disagree with how that's being decided. But usually they'll let that stand because there's no reason to create, take up their precious amount of time with a thing that it seems that all the circuits are in agreement on. The problem comes is when you have different circuits, different parts of the country deciding different issues differently, because then you get, you know, in Texas, it's regulated one way. In California, it's regulated different. This is called a circuit split. And in those cases, the Supreme Court is going to be more likely to take those up just because there's uh, there's a need for a certain amount of uniformity, uh, particularly on major issues. So, I mean, it really, and it depends. It just depends. And it sometimes, sometimes there's an element of a case that comes up. It's like, it's an issue that probably needs to be decided, but the facts of the case are kind of muddled. And so not enough justices think that they could actually come to a, a solid decision. They might wait for another one to come up that, you know, if the facts are really good, they can make a far-reaching decision um, because the facts are so obvious. Whereas if it's something a little more ambiguous, it's a little harder to go out there and completely overturn an area of law or reconstitute things when it's, a little, you know, kind of a gray area. All right. Rank the eight sitting justices in terms of how they assess our issue set, uh, the regulatory state, the economy. Okay. Um, I'd probably say Thomas is the most favorable to us uh, just because he's prepared to basically burn down the administrative state. He's very aggressive about it. Um, It's hard to divide between Alito and um, Gorsuch since Gorsuch is so new. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alito, for right now, I'd say I put Alito number two just because he's been consistent. He's another one that's very consistent about trying to pair back, peg back the administrative state. Gorsuch probably would be next. John Roberts is... I was hoping you'd slot him below some of the others. He's kind of all over the place. Um, He's... Part of his problem is that he's very uh, dependent. He's very solicitous of stare decisis. He He doesn't like rocking the boat. Uh, he doesn't like overturning long established precedents, so he's very he's very careful about that. So I think he he probably agrees with us on the issues personally, but he's much more concerned about the institution, about how his he since he's the chief justice, how his court is going to be seen. Um, so he's he's a wild card. He's a bit of a wild card, honestly. Kennedy, honestly, Kennedy is kind of indistinguishable from probably a Kagan on our issues. One thing about Elena Kagan is that she's she's one of the few lefty judges who's willing to follow a philosophical view of the court's role, and she's willing to follow that philosophical view to outcomes that she might not necessarily agree with. So I'd probably put her and Kennedy, who have obviously I put them kind of indistinguishable because Kennedy Kennedy has been has had bad, a lot of bad votes on our issues. Next, Ginsburg is. Ginsburg and uh, Breyer probably probably indistinguishable. They're not particularly persuadable. They they take a very expansive view of what government should be allowed to do. So I'd put them together as on the left. And then the far left is Sotomayor, who's essentially a partisan in a robe. She votes for what she considers the, the, the ideological left position on any given issue is. It looks like that's going to be about all the time we have, Kenny. Um, is there anything else that you have to say about this? A closing uh, argument, if yeah. you will. Yeah, well, yeah. just uh, of the whole Kavanaugh discussion, the, the he has a lot of good quotes and decisions that he's made over the years, but 
Uh, one that I really, really jumps out at me is actually came from a case that's from 2012. It's uh, the Coalition for Responsible Regulation Against the EPA. And he had a very good that just I just want to read a quote from him that I think does a really good job of summing up, uh, I think, his approach to these issues and uh, how he lets his he lets the thought process work its way to the end rather than trying to inject his ideological opinions uh, in the in the discussion. Um, so it's, it, his quote is, uh, EPA's regulations for the prevention of significant deterioration statute may well be a good idea as a matter of policy. The task of dealing with global warming is urgent and important. But as in so many cases, the question here is, who decides? The short answer is that Congress, with the president, sets the policy through statutes, agencies, and implements that policy within statutory limits. And courts and justiciable cases ensure that agencies stay within the statutory limits set by Congress. A court's assessment of an agency's compliance with statutory limits does not depend on whether the agency's policy is good or whether the agency's intentions are laudatory. So that's what I see as his approach to all these issues. He's concerned about, did Congress actually give the agency the power to do this? It's not my job to inject my own policy opinions. I don't, I judge, judge Kavanaugh do not set policy priorities. That's the, that's Congress's job with a helping hand from the president. All we do is make sure that they are staying within those bounds. That's pretty clear. Uh, that comes through strongly there. Thanks for bringing that to the pod today. Thank you for listening to the Plugged In Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And to learn more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org.